Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast for Zionstone United Church of Christ in Northampton, Pennsylvania. My name is Pastor Mike Landsman, and this podcast is taken from my weekly Sunday sermons. I pray that they'll be a blessing to you, and if you're ever in the area, please stop in and worship with us. We'd love to have you. So, we've been going through our summer series on the Apostles' Creed. Last week we talked about what it means when we say that Jesus is, God, is the only begotten Son, and we talked about what it means when we call Him Christ, and what it means when we call Him Lord. We talked about how the word begotten means unique, or one and only. We talked about how Jesus is identified with the God Yahweh in the Old Testament. We talked about how Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one, which is what that word means. We learned that it's not a last name. It is a title. Uh, We talked also about how when we call him Lord, we realize that Jesus is the one to whom we owe our primary allegiance. And we talked a little bit about that greater than any political party or political figure. Our primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ and to him and to his kingdom alone. So this week we come to the part of the creed where it says, talking about Jesus Christ, because remember the creed is divided up into three parts, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So we're talking, the longest portion of the creed is, is about Jesus. And it says that he was born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. So this is one part of the creed that a lot of people like, born of the Holy Spirit, right on, born of the Virgin Mary. A bunch of people are like... Eh, can that really happen? Is that just talking about something else? It sounds kind of off to modern, to modern ears. Before we get that, we're going to talk a little bit what it means to be, where it says, uh, talking about the Holy Spirit. We're not going to talk at length too much about the Holy Spirit, because confessing belief in the Holy Spirit does show up again later on in the creed. But today what we're going to do is we're going to limit ourselves to, uh, to, to a few observations. So the first observation is that the Holy Spirit is not a ghost. He's not like the force, you know? Some people talk about the Holy Spirit as like this, like language, it's almost Star Warsian, you know? It's this energy field that surrounds us, created by all living things. No, the Holy Spirit is not an energy field. The Holy Spirit is not a ghost. He's not a good feeling. The Holy Spirit is God. And so being God, the Holy Spirit's work is present in the incarnation of Jesus and in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit being God is not a dogma that was added to the Christian faith later on. We see the Holy Spirit at work even in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And we see the Holy Spirit being present and part of creation itself. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2, it says, "In In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And the psalmist says in 140, 30, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. So the same Holy Spirit that animates all things, that gives life to all things, is the one who just like a creation, overshadowing the waters, overshadows the womb of the Virgin Mary. Luke 1.35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So we see the Holy Spirit at work in cooperation with the ascent of the Virgin Mary. Now notice this. The angel doesn't appear to Mary and say, by the way, you're pregnant. This is all part of God's plan. What does the, Holy, what does the angel do? The angel appears to her and says, this is what God wants to do. And what does Mary say? I'll think about it. 
does she say, I don't know, maybe, maybe, how about next year? My calendar's looking a little busy. No. The angel appears to her and, and she says, I am the handmaiden of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary says yes to the plan of God. And in saying yes to the plan of God is when the incarnation takes place in her womb of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be spending the rest of our time today here dealing with the virgin birth, or as we should probably actually call it, the divine conception, because that's kind of actually what's going on, what's going on here. So the first thing we need to understand about the, about the virgin conception or the virgin birth is it's part of an overall pattern that has clear links to the story of other miracle births in the Old Testament. So when we read this story, we shouldn't read this story in isolation from the rest of Scripture or some of the other biblical stories that we have. These all kind of form this beautiful mosaic. They all work together. In Genesis 17, we have the story of Abraham and Sarah. God says to Abraham, I will bless her and Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become a nation. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So when we read this story, we know as Christians, right? Especially if we know our Abraham, we, we all know the Abraham story. We sang it in Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons of Father Abraham and daughters. They should probably have added in there too. We know how the story ends. Sarah miraculously has a child in her old age, and that son is Isaac. He is the one who was promised to Abraham and to Sarah. He is then the father of Jacob, and Jacob is the father of the 12 sons, and those 12 sons are going to be originators of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's the only time in history a pyramid scheme has ever worked. Beware people who come to you and say, I have a wonderful business opportunity for you. Run. <laughs> Run the other way. Do not give them your phone number because they will not stop calling you. In Judges 13, we see another story, not just the one that we see here in Genesis. And we all know this because we covered this last year. And I know you all remember perfectly when we talked about the story of Samson, when we went through the book of Judges. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. So how does this part of the story end? Well, the judge Samson is born, and he becomes a mighty deliverer through whom the Spirit of God comes upon. And when the Spirit of God comes upon him, he's able to do these remarkable and incredible feats of strength and warfare. Then we see this story of divine, miraculous birth show up again in 1 Samuel 1, 5 through 6. But to Hannah, he, Elkanah, her husband, gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So when we look in this story, she cannot have children. And Hannah goes to the temple, or not the temple, the temple wasn't built yet. She goes to the tabernacle and she's so filled with grief and she's praying so hard that she, words aren't even coming out of her mouth. And the priest sees her and he's like, it is too early in the morning to be drunk. And you're here at the church praying drunk? Go home. I'm going to have the ushers kick you out. And she says, I'm not praying. I'm not drunk. I was, I was in so much grief and agony over this that I was deep in prayer. And he says, the Lord will grant you your request. So then we know after this, the great prophet Samuel is born. 
And Samuel is the one who will anoint the first king of Israel, Saul. And then he's also going to anoint David. And in each of these accounts, God supernaturally aids a couple, right? In all of these accounts. And they, he helps them conceive a child who will then go on to perform an important mission or a task for God. They will save his people from their enemies. They will establish his covenant with them. And he, it's, it's this ongoing thing that he's doing with all of these stories. And Mary's story is a continuation of the activity of God's salvation for his people and for the world. The salvation and deliverance that Jesus will bring is typified in these accounts. Jesus will be the fulfiller of the old covenant and the initiator of the new. Jesus will save his people from their enemies of sin and death. Just like Samson comes and he saves his people from the Philistines, Jesus will come and save their enemies. Just as the son of the promise, Isaac is born through whom the nations will be blessed. Jesus is born through whom all the nations will be blessed. And just as Samuel was born to lead God's people and to anoint the kings of Israel, Jesus will restore the true worship of God and he's going to anoint his own followers to carry on his work of renewing worship and proclaiming his saving gospel to the world. So these stories aren't meant to be read in isolation. These are all an ongoing thing. The difference with this one being is that God himself is now stepping in instead of just working through a human being, two human beings. God himself is, is, is the initiator. The second thing we need to understand is that the virgin conception of the virgin birth, it clarifies Jesus' identity as the pre-existent son of God made flesh. That's a good starting point here because when the angel Gabriel tells her of God's plan and Mary assents, she is not instantly nine months pregnant, right? When, when she says, be it unto me according to your word, she's not, not it's, it's not like, okay, the angel goes zap or the Holy Spirit zaps her and then all of a sudden she's, you know, nine months pregnant. No, it doesn't work that way. She conceives. This might seem kind of like an odd point to begin with, but it demonstrates that the child she is carrying is a human being with the normal developmental stages that normally occur. But we also understand that due to the Holy Spirit's activity that this child is also somehow God. Luke 135 says, Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Commenting on this, the early church father and the great defender of the faith, St. Athanasius of Alexandria says, he takes that which is ours from a spotless virgin, although himself being powerful and the creator of the universe, he prepared for himself in the virgin the body as a temple and made it his own as an instrument, making himself known and dwelling in it. Now, the reason why this is important, brothers and sisters, is because of the history of the church. One of the earliest heresies in the church was called docetism. Now, this said that Jesus wasn't really born. He wasn't really a human being. He sort of just shows up on the scene. He's not really crucified. It's kind of an illusion. And it's almost as if like he was just kind of floats above the ground, right? He doesn't really walk anywhere. He's just, it's kind of weird. But this story, these infancy narratives, what they do is, is they help us hold to the idea that even though Jesus is fully divine, he is still fully human, and he came into the world the same way that humans normally come into the world, because he takes our humanity, and he mediates it to God, and he mediates his divinity to humanity. The third thing we need to understand is that Mary is the first person to bear Christ. 
Therefore, she's an example of what it means to obey God and to be humble before God. And this is something, sadly, that's been neglected, particularly among Christians who've come out of Reformation backgrounds, like the Reformed Lutherans, is that Mary became, people became so scared of acknowledging Mary and her special role in the coming of Jesus that she was almost kind of just pushed down to the side. You can see this all the time, even when you talk to people or, or read stuff online, there's still this tendency many have to be like, oh, no, she was just somebody. You know, she just said yes, and that's great, but that's all there is to it. But she's our example of what it means to obey God and to be humble before God. When we start in Genesis, we see Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see, we see the results of that disobedience. In the Virgin Mary, we see that disobedience reversed. So Eve sins and Adam sins by disobeying God. Mary reverses Eve's sin by saying yes to God. When told of God's plan, like I said, she didn't say, I'll think about it. She says yes, and her yes is our yes to God. St. Irenaeus said, The knot of Eve's disobedience was loosened by the obedience of Mary. For what Eve bound fast through unbelief, this did the Virgin Mary set free through faith. Mary's yes to God keeps the ball going down the field, as it were, in regards to the continuation of the saving acts of God in the history of his people Israel for the world. Anglican theologian Michael Burt says, the virgin conception is not a Christianized version of pagan mythology. It tells us about Israel's hopes coming true, about God's son made flesh, about the spirit's power in Jesus' life, about a new world dawning, and about God's victory over Satan through the offspring of Eve. Brothers and sisters, Mary's yes is our yes. Her yes to the plan and to the will and to the purpose of God is our yes. In the reading we heard St. Paul says, get rid of all envy and slander and wickedness and deceit and all of that stuff. Mary's yes helps us to say yes to God. Mary's doing the will of God helps us to actually accomplish what St. Paul admonishes the church in Ephesus to do, to get rid of those things. Because as we say yes to God, like she said yes to God, just as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, so too the Holy Spirit that we've been given will rise up in us, will help us, will lead us, will guide us when we're faced with wickedness, when we're faced with temptation, when we're faced with terrible decisions, when we're faced with hardship, when we're faced with with, with, even with, with death, is that the Holy Spirit will bring comfort. He will bring guidance. He will bring the ability to keep going sometimes. Sometimes that's all we need is just to be able to keep going. And so let Mary's yes be an example to us as it should be. Let us not relegate her to the margins of Scripture, but remember to celebrate her to keep her in our minds and in our hearts because her yes to God is our yes to God. And her yes to God places her as a key part of redemptive history. And our yes to God is a continuation of what God has done for us through her son whom she bore in obedience to God's plan and purpose. And so to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ be all glory together with his Father who is from everlasting. And it's all holy, good, and life-creating spirit. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the podcast for Zion Stone United Church of Christ. You know, our church has deep roots here in the community, and we predate the founding of the United States itself. If you're looking for a church that is biblically faithful and traditionally grounded, come visit us. We may just be the church for you. You can find us online, zionsstoneucc.com. You can find us on Facebook as well, zionsstoneucc. I'm Pastor Mike Landsman. If you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at malandsman at gmail.com. Once again, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. May God bless you, and we hope you have you visit us.